Good morning. My name is Donna. The Old Testament reading today is found in Psalm 56, verses 12 and 13. I will fulfill my promises to you, God. I will present thanksgiving offerings to you, because you have saved my life from death, saved my feet from stumbling, so that I can walk before God in the light of life. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Eric. The New Testament reading is found in the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. If we claim we have fellowship with him and live in the darkness... We are lying and do not act truthfully. But if we live in the light in the same way as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Jill. And if you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the Word was life. And the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing for me as we pray. Pastor Blake said queso, so I'm having a hard time focusing uh, ever since that simple word. It just, like my stomach turned over and was like, oh yeah, when service over? Uh, that's all dependent upon me, right, at this point. So let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful um, for your word to us. And we ask today the very same thing that we, we sang just a, a minute ago, that old song from Rich Mullins. Um, that you would teach us to walk in your ways, that step by step that you would lead us. And so today, as we look at your scriptures, as we read your word, would you show us, would you guide us, would you direct us, would you help us to know where the next place is that you want to step our foot, where you want us to step our feet, as we follow you in the way that leads to life. Help us today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Hello to everybody that's watching online. We love you. We miss you. Hope that you are doing well. Today's the fourth Sunday in the season of Easter. We'd like to keep that before us by continuing to have that moment where we say he is risen, continue to sing resurrection songs, continue to mention Easter before us because the resurrection is where our hope lies, that we believe in the God who raises the dead. 
We believe in the God who not just suffered and died, but the God who was raised to life, that we might have new life with him. And that new life is not something that we only experience later, but actually he wants to bring new life to us today. And so we continue to keep that in mind as we approach the scriptures. When I first came to faith at the end of high school and got involved in a church and then went off to a Christian school, I ended up in lots of conversations and connections and community uh, with people who were influenced by the Word of Faith movement. Uh, The Word of Faith movement is kind of a, a movement within charismatic Christianity that puts a lot of emphasis on the power of faith and the power of our words. The power of faith and the power of our words in a way that really champions kind of positive confessions. And there is this sense for us that our words matter and how we use our words matter and there's some significance to some of those things. And yet what I found, at least my experience, was that what ended up happening so often in those communities was that it became very difficult to talk about anything that was hard. It became very difficult to talk about hard emotions or hard experiences. It became difficult in some way to actually be honest about what was going on. And that is already hard enough for us in life. And particularly, I think, in the church, it's hard for us to be honest about what's going on. It's hard to be honest about the broken or difficult or frustrating or despairing places of our life. It's hard to be honest when we're struggling with doubt or fear or anxiety. And it's really difficult sometimes in those communities, um, not always, but at least in my experience, that it was hard to speak honestly about where we're at in life in order to ask for help in order to get the help that we needed. There was a sense if we just keep talking positively long enough, then everything will start to come into alignment. And yet what I found to be true about Jesus and what I found to be true about the gospel is that the gospel is always inviting us to be honest about our lives. The gospel that Jesus is very comfortable, in fact, desires and longs for us to speak the truth about our lives. Because when we speak the truth about him and about our lives, we find that that's actually where transformation begins to take place. Last week, we kicked off a series in 1 John. And I forgot to mention this last week, but I just encourage you to grab this book and keep reading it. It's five chapters long. Read a chapter a day, five days a week for the next few weeks as we are walking through uh, this series together. Allow these words to get really deep inside of you to, as we said all the way back in January, to delight in our discipleship is in many ways to delight in the word of God and to allow ourselves just to immerse ourselves in scripture and in the story of God. Last week, I gave a little bit of background to this uh, book. It's actually less like a letter and more like a sermon. It's a sermon most likely written by an early follower of Jesus who was an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of our King. It's probably the same author as the Gospel of John and the letters of 2nd and 3rd John. They have similar language, similar tone, similar imagery, similar vocabulary. And 1st John was written most likely at the end of the 1st or maybe the very beginning of the 2nd century. So about 60 to 75 years years 
after the resurrection of Jesus. And it was written from John, who refers to himself as the elder in 2nd and 3rd John, to the churches that he's overseen in a in city called Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. And what these churches are going through is quite a crisis. Because here they are, 60 to 75 years after the resurrection of Jesus, 1,100 miles away from Jerusalem. Not quite a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away for them, but long enough and far enough that there were new teachers who had new ideas about Jesus. And they began to talk in ways about Jesus and to teach things about Jesus that actually went against uh, who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. They began to teach and deny that Jesus was the Son of God who came in the flesh. They were denying that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who came to rescue Israel and to rescue the whole world. And they were being to teach these other ideas about Jesus that created a schism in the church and eventually split off from the church. Of course, that never happens today, so we don't have to worry about any of those things anymore. But just, you know, in case, we'll, we'll keep going. So what John's doing is he's writing to encourage those who've remained, that in the middle of this sort of break-off movement that is moving away from the truth about Jesus, John is writing this sermon to encourage those who have continued to remain faithful in the church. In the opening chapter, John asserts his authority over these false teachers. He says, I was there. I heard, I saw, I touched, and everything that I experienced, that my friends experienced, we preserved and we faithfully passed it on to you. And then he tells them why he's writing, why it matters to him that the church stays the course. First John 1.3 says, what we have seen and heard, we have announced it to you. Why? So that you can have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. John is writing the sermon to encourage them to remain in fellowship, to stay in fellowship. And last week I mentioned that this word that gets translated fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. It has this sense of close and intimate communion. It's about a participation in a common and shared life. It's the realization that in Christ we are members of the triune God and members of one another. In fact, I said last week that the goal of the gospel is the participation in the eternal life of God and the common life of the church. That Jesus has come and done all that Jesus has done. And the truth of the gospel goes out and invites us in to a way of life that brings us into close and intimate communion with God and with one another. We're forgiven. We're saved. We're set free. All of the words that we use around the gospel, why do all of those things happen? That we might experience true intimacy with God and with one another. The invitation of the gospel, the invitation of Jesus is into a full life. And that full life is about relationship with God and relationship with one another. It's personal and it's communal. It's both and has always been both. So now the rest of the sermon, what John goes on to do is he begins to develop several major themes or ideas. 
And he does so in this really beautiful and poetic way. He, in this poetic and sort of circular or cyclical style, John begins using all these overlapping metaphors that are built off of these sharp contrasts that we see in nature. He talks about Jesus and the way of life of Jesus and the way of life that is anti or contrary to Jesus in terms of life and death and light and darkness and true and false and love and hate and good music and country music. Those kind of like, oh, that, that's actually not in the text, but it can be implied, I think, um, from there, just out of general life experience, we know this to be true. Um, but he keeps coming back to these ideas, keeps coming back to these images, and they start to bleed into one another. They actually overlap and collapse and intermix on top of one another. But he begins with the images of light and dark, and he says this in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard. So from the very beginning, this is the message that we have announced to you, that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Light is a frequent and fitting metaphor for God that we find actually throughout all of Scripture. And one of the reasons for that is that light in the Scriptures is associated with life. It's associated with this very idea of life itself. Light is understood as the source and the sustainer of life, whereas darkness is associated with death. This idea originates in Genesis chapter 1. As we are opening the scriptures on the first few pages, it says, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, and we begin to see that there was darkness. And then God says, let there be lights. And all of a sudden there was light and he separates the light from the darkness. And because there is light, there can now be life. That all of life ends up coming out of this initial command of God saying, let there be light. John's gospel picks up on this. We heard it in our gospel reading. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And he goes on and says, the word was life and the word was light for all. He begins to pull these things together. It's John's way of saying that God is the source of our life. That if we're going to say that God is light, it's a way of saying that all life actually comes from God. And all life is sustained by him. But there's another image that usually comes really quickly with that. Not only is light associated with life, but light gets associated with ethics, with morality, with human behavior, with how it is that we're supposed to live. Light is representative in the scriptures of rights, things that are right and good, where darkness becomes associated with evil. So to say that God is light is not only to say that he is the source of life, but he's also the one that determines morality. He's the one who actually gets to set the standard for human behavior. That as the creator, as the one who designed everything, as the one who made us, who knows us and knows the world in a way that we never will, he actually gets to set the standard. And this is often one of the most significant barriers that we have to faith. And one of the most significant challenges that we have 
in our ongoing discipleship. Because this idea directly confronts our desire to determine how we live for ourselves. It directly runs against that place in us where we have both a desire and at times even believe that it is our right to self-determine how we're going to live. It's actually the root of our original rebellion against God. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve, they eat from a tree, and the tree is named the knowledge of good and evil. And if they eat from it, they will be like God. The text is telling us what they're wanting to do is be the determiners of good and evil themselves. They want to be God and decide what is right and good and true and beautiful for humanity rather than following God's way of saying what is right and good and true and beautiful for humanity. We have this desire to determine what is right and wrong for ourselves. And we have a deep resistance to anyone telling us how we're supposed to live. It began at one or two or three with our parents. If you don't believe it, just ask them, how was I as a two-year-old? What was that like, parenting me in that moment? I was really just compliant all the time, wasn't I? Yeah? No, we have this sense, like, don't tell me what to do. In fact, now it's culturally taboo to do so. It's culturally taboo to even suggest to anyone, hey, maybe there's actually a better way to live than that. Maybe that's not going so well for you. And where that is going to lead is not going to be good for you. And not only do we have that resistance toward other people, we certainly feel that resistance toward God. Like, don't tell me how to live. We feel that resistance to the scriptures. I don't want to think about this thousands of year old document. What does I have to do with my life today? And yet faith and discipleship, the moment of faith, the beginning of faith, and the ongoing process of discipleship is actually coming to a place where we say, okay, the creator is actually the one who gets to say what it means to be human. He is the one that actually gets to talk about how we live and the ongoing process of discipleship is learning how to surrender and submit my will to his, my ideas to his, my desires to his, my determination to his. Because God is not only the source of our life, God's the one who sets the standard for our lives. This is what John's saying when he comes out and says, God is the light. He's the very source. He's the one who sustains all life and the one who tells us actually how to live. He's the originator of life and the determiner of how we are to live. And John pulls these ideas together. And he tells us to walk in the light in order to live, in order to experience life to its full. 
This idea of to walk in the light is a Hebrew idiom. That John, as a good Old Testament kid, as a Jewish boy growing up, he heard these ideas. We heard it in the psalm a second ago that to walk this way is, means to live this way. So John heard all growing up, walk this way, walk this way, walk this way. He learned it from the Old Testament. I'm a child from the 80s, so I learned it from Aerosmith and Run DMC on MTV as Steven Tyler's belting out, why? And I just, like, it's seared. Every time I come to the scriptures, there's Stephen Tyler, like, staring back at me, smiling. And I'm like, okay, yeah, Stephen, I'm going to walk that way. But not your way, a different way. <laughs> First John goes on in verse 7 and says this, But if we live in the light, if we walk in the light, in the same way as he is in the light, then we have fellowship, koinonia, with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. There's that word again, fellowship. John urges us to walk in the light, to live in the light, to walk according to the ways of Jesus that we might have fellowship. Interestingly here, he specifically says that we might have fellowship with who? With one another, is where he leads off. Once again, for John, life with God and life with the church are inseparable. In the New Testament, we can't have one without the other. They are mutually inclusive. This is like me and baseball for Sarah. It's like she got one and the other just comes right along. All 162 games plus the playoffs and the winter meetings. It's your lounge. She's like, oh yeah. Or maybe for you, it's your spouse and your in-laws. They just, you know, came together uh, from there. But there's a mutually inclusive sense throughout the scriptures that to love God is to love his people. To be a part of God is to be a part of his people. And so from here, John then develops two ideas that he associates with walking in the light. And the two that he develops in particular here are the forgiveness of sin and obedience to Jesus. We're going to talk about forgiveness today and obedience next week, so you can buckle up for that one. Uh, but here we hear the first notes of what he's trying to say about forgiveness in this verse. It says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. John is referencing, of course, here the Jewish sacrificial system that we learn as we read through Leviticus over and over and over again in our daily private devotions. But he's taking that sacrificial system and he's applying it to Jesus' crucifixion. He's applying it to Jesus' death. In the Old Testament, the word law or the word Torah means instruction. We've talked about this before. That root word means to aim or to shoot or to kind of point at a target. And so the law, the commands of God are meant to show us, give us a trajectory of what it means to actually live in right relationship with God and with ourselves and with other people and with all of creation. And the idea of sin is anything that misses that mark. Anything that is off target from that. Anything that misses the very goal and intention of God's commands. Anything that misses the reflection of his character in our lives. Anything that actually falls short of what is actually best for us. 
God gives us those things because he loves us. And he wants us to know, actually, here's how you were made to thrive. He's talking about anything that's harmful to us is sin. Anything that is harmful to our relationship with God and with others. And in the Old Testament, it says when we experience those things, it needs to be made right. That anything that misses the mark needs to be made right. The Old Testament uses the language of it needs to be purified or cleansed or forgiven. And the sacrificial system was given as a pathway in order to make it right. God said, I will accept these things as a way of creating a path to us toward forgiveness and reconciliation. And we all sort of innately know that we need pathways in those moments. Think about a time in your life, maybe you just blew it. And you, you, you completely missed something. And it deeply hurts someone that you love. The first thing that we say oftentimes in those moments is, how can I make it right? How, 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 can, I, how can I go back? How can I fix this? How can I restore this? What can I do? Or maybe we blew it and no one knows. And so then we live with this sense of shame and internally we're having that conversation with ourselves. How can I get right? What, what can I do to get back to where I was? We are acutely aware of the damage and the disruption of our own actions and our own choices. And we are desperately searching in our lives for ways to make peace with ourselves, to make peace with other people, and particularly to make peace with God. And the New Testament claims that Jesus' death, the shedding of his blood, is actually what makes peace. That Jesus is the way in which we're purified and cleansed and forgiven. That Jesus is actually how God deals with our sin. And so 1 John 2 goes on and says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. The desire is that we don't, that we actually learn to live with Jesus in a way that we're moving closer and closer to God's heartbeat for us. And then he says, but if you do sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Or in some uh, translations, they would go on and say he's the atoning sacrifice. Here to say he is God's way of dealing with our sins. Not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. What John's trying to say there is that Jesus' death is not just effective for Jews, but effective for the whole world. That there is a universal availability of forgiveness in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That Jesus is offering us forgiveness. He's the atoning sacrifice and the advocate. He's the one who died for our sin and mediates for us. He's both the priest and the sacrifice. We want to be set right and Jesus alone can actually set us right with God. Jesus alone we can't do it ourselves. There's no amount of effort or good works or trying harder or pulling ourselves up or just gritting our teeth that can actually make us right. Instead, Jesus alone can do it. And the good news is that he wants to. 
He longs to. It's why he came. It's why he suffered. It's why he died. It's why he rose again. It's why he sent us the Spirit. It's why he's going to come back. Because he wants nothing more than for us to participate in the eternal life of God and the common life of our brothers and sisters. He's like, I want to forgive you. Why? Because I want to be with you. I don't want to remain separated. So in Jesus, forgiveness is freely and readily available, but it's made available to us through confession, through speaking the truth about our lives. 1 John 1, 8 says, If we claim that we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything that we've done wrong. Another version says to cleanse us from all of our unrightness, our unrighteousness. But if we claimed we have never sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Because of our resistance to God's ethical standards in our lives, we're also really resistant to being honest about sin. It's what we do. It's at least what I do. <laughs> like there's just this resistance. Like I don't want to talk about it. And so we have several sort of things that we do. Sometimes we just dismiss it. Oh, that wasn't wrong. <laughs> what I do wasn't, what I did, that wasn't wrong. That was not a, that was not actually wrong at all. Was, I was just misunderstood. I was misperceived. My heart was right in the whole thing. And so that, you know, the fact that they were hurt, they, they shouldn't be hurt by that at all. I was, I was actually in the right if they just knew actually what was going on. Or we want to deny it. Oh, that didn't happen. I didn't do that. I don't do that. That's not something that's a part of my life. That's something that other people struggle with. They struggle over there, but me, I don't, I don't struggle with that at all. That's not a part of me and my story. Or we diminish it. Oh, it's not really that big of a deal. It could have been worse. You know, that person, they did worse. Or you did worse to me. And really, if you think about it in light of what I did versus what you did, what you did is a much bigger deal. And that leads us into that place of blame shifting at sometimes. You know, it's not really my fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's my kids' fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my roommate's fault. It's my neighbor's fault. It's my friend's fault. It's my coworker's fault. It was that other driver's fault. It's the Broncos' fault, for Pete's sake. Like, that's why I'm so angry. <laughs> so I was born in Colorado, and I got stuck with that team. And if I had been born somewhere else, it would have been fine. It wouldn't be this way. <laughs> and I'm, not, I'm not trying to ignore the impact that other people have on our lives. This is not about, I'm not talking about other people's sin, other people's abuse, other people's mistreatment of us. I'm talking about ours. And the recognition that when it comes to our own sin, the invitation is to be honest about it, to own our own parts. When it comes to the things that we're doing or not doing that are damaging ourselves or others or disrupting relationship, we oftentimes live our lives just like Adam and Eve. That having rebelled against God, what do they do? They just go and hide in the bushes. And, you know, they hand sew some fig leaves together to hope to cover up their souls. <laughs> 
we have all these sort of like fig leaves that we're walking around with. It's like, I hope nobody notices. It's going to be fine. But in John's language, living that way is just dying in the dark rather than living and walking in the light. It doesn't work. It doesn't lead toward peace and intimacy and joy and healing and freedom. Instead, what happens when we live that way is we find ourselves isolated and alone, feeling unknown and unloved, and wondering if anybody did know what was going on or what happened. Would they love us? Would they accept us? We end up leaving our lives exhausted because the human soul wasn't meant for that kind of duality or or duplicity. To like hide one part of our life and live as different people in different places. We were not meant for that. And then we live our lives terrified. What if I'm ever found out? What if they really knew? What, 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 if, what, what would happen in any of those places? And John says we don't actually have to live that way. We don't have to live that way because there is a pathway toward forgiveness. There is a pathway toward freedom. There is a pathway out of guilt and shame and isolation and loneliness and exhaustion and all of the things that actually end up keeping us in the dark. And that pathway is through confession and taking what we keep in the dark and carrying our sin into the lights of Christ's cleansing love. Saying, actually, I'm going to speak the truth about myself here and entrust myself to God. The road to recovery, the road to freedom, the road to healing, the road out of the dark begins with admitting that we're wrong. (laughs) Begins with admitting that we've messed up. Begins with admitting that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we've fallen short of God's hopes and dreams and intentions for us, which are actually the very best of things. It begins with stepping out of the dark and into the light and aligning every part of our lives with the reality rather than trying to create a false reality somewhere else. It begins by saying, I was wrong and I'm sorry and please forgive me. I don't want to live this way. I need help in order to live differently. And when we say that to Jesus, he says, yes, Yes, John puts it this way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from everything in us that is unright. Jesus is more faithful to forgive than we are faithful to sin. Jesus' forgiveness is greater than our greatest sin. Jesus' forgiveness is greater than my greatest sin. It's greater than your greatest sin. You may be saying, well, you don't know what I did. Maybe I don't. But what I know here is that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The the text teaches us, what John teaches us, what God shows us about himself in Jesus is that his blood is stronger than any shame that we feel. It's stronger. And he actually wants to forgive us. He wants to set us free. He wants to bring our lives into alignment. 
He just wants us to want the same thing. And confession is a way of saying, I want to be honest about my life. I want to carry my sin out of the dark and place it in Christ's cleansing light. As the worship team and Sarah come forward, what we're about to do here at the table is we're going to make two confessions today. We're going to speak the truth about God and we're going to speak the truth about ourselves. We're going to recite the creed that reminds us who God is and what Jesus came to do. And we're going to confess our sin together. It's a way of every week entrusting ourselves to the God who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a way of saying, okay, I believe that it's true, so I'm going to speak it. We'll speak in large terms together. There's an importance of being able to speak it for ourselves. And sometimes the next step after speaking that to God is speaking it to somebody else that you love, that you trust, that you respect, who can actually grab you by the hand and look you in the eye and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Now let's walk together with Jesus into hope, into freedom, into forgiveness, into the light. It may mean coming up for prayer after the service. It may mean finding Pastor Ken and saying, I need to get involved and celebrate recovery this summer because I need a pathway out of it. It may be talking to your spouse. It may be finding a counselor. It may be coming and talking to a pastor. It may be grabbing a mentor and saying, I need to be honest with what's going on in my life because I don't want to live this way anymore. And I trust that in Jesus, there is forgiveness of sin. So we're going to begin um, this morning at Jesus's table, uh, confessing our creed. This is the way. This is the way that we follow, and that Christians all around the world and throughout time have confessed, have said, "This is the truth," and all everything else, our sacraments, our hope, everything flows out of this. So, um, just say this together. The words will be on the screen. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. One of my favorite lines of a hymn says, all the love of God is here. It's a love that casts out all fear. We come to the table this morning inside of all the love of God. Nothing is withheld from us. The only thing keeping us from the love of God is our own resistance 
to forgiveness, nothing else. So as we come to the table this morning, will you allow that resistance inside of you that we each have, sometimes it's really small, sometimes it's larger, to soften, to be melted by the love of God that is here, all of it now. Let's confess together and receive the mercy of God together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Friends, it's my joy this morning to announce the good news to us. Words that are true, not because I'm saying them, but because what the love of God has done for us. So would you open up your hands and receive again the bountiful mercy of God. Here's the truth. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. This proves God's love toward us. There's nothing left to prove. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. As those who have been raised to new life, would you stand and greet those around you in the name of Jesus and share his peace with one another. Let's come back together now. Jesus is here. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right. It is. It's a good, it's a joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, because you formed us in your image and you breathed your life into us. And when our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you sent your son, Jesus, to be faithful on our behalf. On the night that he was to be handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. When he had blessed it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. He said, friends, Take and eat. This is my body. I'm giving it for you. When you receive this, every time you receive this, remember me. After the supper was over, he took the cup of wine. 
After he had given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant. It's shed for you, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. And so, God, in remembrance of your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we proclaim this mystery of our faith together. Christ has died, and Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. All of us who are in Christ are part of a priesthood of all believers, so would you stretch out your hands to bless these elements with me, to ask for the Holy Spirit to be presiding over us here. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on us, on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ so that we can be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Jesus, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Jesus returns in final victory and we see him together face to face. Amen. I want to invite the servers to come up now. Friends, these are the gifts of God. They're given for us, the people of God. Receive them in remembrance that Jesus loves you, that Jesus died for you, that all the love of God is here. Feed on him in your hearts by faith, with gratitude and thanksgiving. If this is your first time here, we've got a QR code uh, on the screens that you can scan if you want some instructions on how we receive the elements, or you can just Watch what everybody else is doing. And if you are unable to come forward for any reason, please just ask someone around you to bring the elements back to you. We've got some prepackaged ones if you need them. As we come and receive the mercy of God, let's rejoice and let our faith be built in the hope of Christ coming again. Amen. Let's worship together. <laughs>